Take your Bible, find John 16. We've read the passage together, but we're going to reference it this morning. There are notes in the bulletin. You can track along with some of the main ideas that we're going to talk about. Before we jump into John, I want to give you a road map for the next couple of weeks just so you know what's coming. This is going to be our last Sunday in the Gospel of John for a couple of months. Next week, we're going to jump into a series called Christmas Guests. We're going to spend a couple of weeks thinking about the people who came to visit Jesus when he was born in Bethlehem. So we're going to talk about Christmas guests. The first Sunday in January, we're going to uh, set one Sunday aside for what we call the State of the Church Address. And uh, every other year, I share this with you on a Sunday or we mail it out in our newsletter uh, and make it available to you in print. This year, I'm going to share it on a Sunday morning, uh, 2021. This year began with a lot of pastors starting the year with a a 2020 vision type sermon, and I think most of those got derailed somewhere along spring break. I don't think uh, everyone's 2020 vision was quite as good as we thought it was. So hopefully, when we take this Sunday, we just hit pause, we hit reset, we think about what's coming uh, for the upcoming year, and maybe we admit, here's some stuff we don't know, but here's some things that we do know. And it's a good opportunity for us to make sure we're all on the same page as a church. After that, we're going to spend a couple of Sundays talking about the character of God. That's how we actually started this year. We took a month or so and we looked at some of God's attributes, some of his characteristics. We're going to do that again. We certainly did not exhaust the characteristics and the attributes of God earlier this year. So we're going to revisit that and talk about those. And then we'll be right back to John. We're ending with John 16, we're going to pick up with John 17, we're going to tackle all the rest of John in one last push in the spring. Uh, Lord willing, we'll come to the resurrection of Jesus and John on Easter Sunday. We didn't get to be together this last Easter, and so hopefully we're able to be together as we press on through the end of John in 2021. This morning, we are still in the farewell discourse. Sometimes it's called the upper room discourse because that's where the whole thing took place. I've told you over the last several weeks, the farewell discourse was delivered in the context of the Passover celebration. Jesus is with his disciples. They're celebrating the Passover. The night that all of this is taking place on is what we would call Maundy Thursday. The very next day will be Good Friday when Jesus is crucified. In less than 24 hours, Jesus will be dead and buried. And in just a few days, Jesus will be raised from the dead. Bible scholars debate where does the farewell discourse actually begin and where does it actually end? Some of them go all the way back to the beginning of John 13 where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and they say that's actually part of this time of teaching, Jesus serving them and washing their feet. Some of them say, no, it starts right after the foot washing. Some of them go all the way through the end of John 17. We'll find out in a couple of months that John 17 is a prayer. It's the last prayer that Jesus prayed in the upper room with the disciples. And some say, no, we cut that prayer off and it's separate. The farewell discourse ends in our passage, John 16, 33. All of that is really relatively unimportant Bible scholars can debate it and argue about it. Here's what's not debatable. In the farewell discourse, we wade into deep Trinitarian waters. 
the Trinity just keeps coming up over and over and over again in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Last week, the focus was on the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, the advocate. This morning, in this last part of John 16, the emphasis is on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And it's good, when we think about the Trinity, just to stop and remind ourselves what the orthodox formulation of this doctrine is. When you try to simplify it too much so that it makes sense in your brain, you end up a heretic. We don't want to be heretics. So we go back and we just remind ourselves the orthodox formulation of the Trinity is that God is one in essence and three in person. He's one in essence. There is only one God. There are not many gods. There's only one true God. When we read the Bible, we find three persons referred to as God or doing things that only God can do. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In this passage, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, we're wading into these Trinitarian waters. In this passage, we're thinking specifically about the relationship between the Father and the Son. It brings us to the big idea of this passage. It's a simple idea, but it's an important idea. The cross changes everything. The cross changes everything. I admit to you that in John 16, 16 to 33, you won't find the word cross. You won't find the word crucifixion. We get to John 19, you'll find those words over and over and over again, but you don't find them here in John 16. Even though it's not mentioned, it's really the only thing that's being talked about here in this passage. It's hours away, and it's the focus of what Jesus is really saying to his disciples as he says farewell. The big idea is that the cross changes everything. Now, in everyday conversation, we use that phrase a lot. We say, ah, This changes everything. That changes everything. Sometimes we talk about a a quote-unquote game changer. How many times have we heard those sorts of words used in 2020? As we've talked about a, a new virus and an outbreak. Is it mutating? Is it not mutating? What's the best therapy? What's the best treatment? Is there a cure? Is there a vaccine? Are we opening? Are we closing? All of these things that the world has been discussing this year, how many times have you read an article or heard someone on the news say, this, whatever this might be today or tomorrow, this is a game changer. Just last night, I was scrolling through social media. I clicked on a link because the title of the link was Game Changer in COVID-19 Battle. And it was about this latest development, and this is going to change everything. We use those words in the world of sports, those of you who like sports. Maybe your favorite college team lands a big recruit, a five-star recruit, and you say, hey, this guy, this gal, they're a game changer. This is going to change everything for our program. Maybe there's an injury to a team. There was a football team last week that all of the quarterbacks were put on the COVID list. None of them could play, and they put in some guy who'd never played quarterback, and the talking head said, well, this kind of changes everything. you got a guy in there playing quarterback, doesn't even know how to play quarterback. Maybe there's an injury to a team, and the star player goes out. Maybe think about Kevin Durant going out. Josiah lost a bet to me because Kevin Durant got hurt, and I said, hey, that's a game changer. That changes everything. 
We use that phrase in the Permian Basin. Maybe there's a new drilling technology that comes along or maybe oil prices go to negative 30 or whatever they were. And you get on the news and everyone's saying, well, this changes everything. That can be a good thing or a bad thing. But we use that sort of language all the time. If you stop and think about the situations where we say stuff like that, when we say this changes everything, a little bit of honesty informs you that usually it doesn't. Usually it doesn't change everything. Usually there are some things that actually stay exactly the same. When we think about our relationship with the Lord and we think about God's relationship with the world, the fallen mass of mankind, in rebellion against him, it is no overstatement to say that the cross changes everything. Is the ultimate game changer in the relationship between a holy God and sinful people. I think you find a nice summary of what we're looking at in this passage if you look at John 16, verse 28. Just look in your copy of the scriptures. John 16, 28. Jesus says, I came from the Father and I have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. I think that one verse sort of summarizes our passage. I think that one verse really summarizes the entirety of the farewell discourse. I mean, it's Jesus saying goodbye. He's saying farewell. It's not a complicated verse to read. Read it one more time. I came from the Father, and I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. The grammar of that sentence is not complex. I came from the Father into this world. Now I'm leaving this world, and I'm going to the Father. Grammatically, it's not complicated. Theologically, it's remarkably complex and deep and weighty. I just want you to think about some of the things that are wrapped up in that summary verse, verse 28. It's a summary of the whole farewell discourse. Here's one thing wrapped up in it. This verse speaks to the deity of God the Son. The deity, meaning Jesus is God the Son. It's not just Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just another human being. But this man is truly God. In Odessa, Texas, one of the things that I love is that when you meet somebody new, it's kind of exciting to see where they're from. Some of you disappoint me and you say, well, I'm from here. I've been here all my life. That's okay. Sometimes you meet somebody and they say, well, I'm from, and they fill in the blank and you say, wow, and you're here. West Texas, in Odessa, Texas, you meet people from all over the world. They come here, obviously, for work. It's a question we usually ask people when we meet them as a new person. We say, well, where are you from? Notice in this passage, Jesus does not say that he's from a place. He actually says he's from a person. That's kind of strange, right? You'd almost expect him to say, I'm from heaven. That would make sense, but he doesn't say that. He says, I'm from the Father. He's not from a place. He's from a person almost reminds you of John's prologue, first verse, John 1, verse 1, that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. I told you several months back when we started in the Gospel of John, I said everything that we come across in the Gospel of John is found in John 1, 1 to 18. It's all there in the prologue. He's not from a place, he's from a person. In eternity past, before any place had been created, earth or heaven, there was a person. There was three persons to be exact, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus says to the disciples, he's not from a place, he's from a person. He's reminding them that in the beginning, he was with the Father. In the beginning, he was God. This little simple statement reminds us of Jesus' deity. Secondly, this verse speaks to the incarnation of the Son of God. The incarnation of God the Son. Verse 28, I came from the Father and I have come into the world. I've come into the world. It reminds us, if we go back to the prologue one more time of John 1.14, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. He lived among us. He tabernacled among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the miracle of the incarnation. It's something that ought to move you to awe and wonder and worship. When during the Christmas season, we specifically stop to think about the fact that, according to the Scriptures, Almighty God entered creation and He lived among us. God became man without ceasing to be God. The creator who in the beginning created human beings in his image took the form of the one creature he created in his image that he might redeem mankind from sin and death. It's the miracle of the incarnation. One last thought in this verse, John 16, 28. This verse speaks to the mission of God the Son. Speaks to his deity, speaks to his incarnation, speaks to his mission. Verse 28, I came from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. It was hours away. Jesus is saying, I came here for a purpose. I came here for a reason. He didn't come just to tell stories. He didn't come just to heal a relatively small number of sick people compared to all of the sick people who have ever lived in the history of the world. He didn't come just to impress people with his tricks or his miracles or his walking on water or his making bread. He came to die. That was the mission. I kept reading this verse this week. It made me think of the famous words of Julius Caesar when he had come back to Rome after a victorious military campaign, and it is alleged that he said, Vini, Vidi, Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. He had a mission, and he saw it through, and it was done. Jesus is on the eve of that mission, his mission coming to fruition. He came to die. That was the mission. Look what we read. Luke 19.10. If you were here a few years ago, you remember we went through the gospel of Luke. We talked about this verse every week. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. That was his mission. How did he seek us? How did he save us? He died for us. He gave his life for ours on the cross. Gospel of Mark says a very similar thing. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. 
That's why God became man. That's why God the Son took on human flesh, that he might give his life as a ransom for ours. He did that at the cross. Paul describes it this way, Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's the incarnation. The Son of God was born as a man. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That was his mission. He came to die. When you look at this verse, John 16, 28, it's not a complicated verse, but it all hangs together. You need all of it there, or it's really of no value at all. Let's just say you take off the deity part, or you, you take off the incarnation part, and you say, you know, history is pretty clear. There was a guy named Jesus. He was from Nazareth, and the Romans crucified him, and he killed him, but he was just a guy. It's just another guy. If that's the only part of the story you hang on to, the mission, the death on the cross, the rest of it, you lose it. You lose the importance of the cross. If it's just another guy dying on a cross, it's just another guy dying on a cross. The reason we celebrate the cross is that this was the God-man dying on the cross. It was God in human flesh dying on the cross. Let's say you hang on to the Christmas story because it's nice and sentimental and you like babies. But let's say that bloody cross stuff is just too much. Is that God would send his son to die on a cross. I, I, don't, I can do without the blood and the guts and the gore and the cross and all the rest of it. If you lose the cross, the Christmas story isn't worth the hallmark paper you print it on. It's meaningless. Who cares if God became a man? Who cares if Jesus really is God in the flesh? If he didn't die for us, that gives us absolutely no hope. All of it hangs together. He is God, and he became a man, and his mission was simple. His mission was dying for our sins. You put it all together, that changes everything. It's a game changer. And in the rest of this passage, Jesus just details to the disciples four things that change because of who he is, because of the incarnation, and because of his death on the cross. Here's what changes. Just four examples. Number one, the cross changes sorrow to joy. Sorrow to joy. Verse 21 and 22, Jesus used the illustration of childbirth. We live in the 21st century. We call the anesthesiologist, and we all breathe a sigh of relief. In the first century, when the anesthesiologist showed up, they handed you a stick, and they said, put that between your teeth and bite on it. That's why Jesus says in this passage, when a woman comes time to give birth to her child, she's sorrowful. There's no anesthesiologist coming. I remember when Amelia was born. We lived in Kingfisher. She was born in Oklahoma City. The lady about three doors down apparently did not call the anesthesiologist. We knew that she was sorrowful. We heard all of her anguish. I think all of Oklahoma City heard her sorrow and her anguish. It was incredible. But then there was joy. Why was there joy? John 16, 21. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And Jesus immediately looks at his disciples and he says, what you're about to experience is kind of like that. You're going to have sorrow, anguish, 
you're going to see me arrested, betrayed, unjustly tried, beaten without mercy, crucified, and thrown in the ground in a tomb that has someone else's name on it. There's going to be sorrow. Three days later, there's going to be joy. The cross changes sorrow into joy. That's true for the disciples, and that's true for us. Christianity is not a story about how your life can be happy every single day. Christianity is not a story about how every day your life can be better than the day before. Christianity is a story about a God who takes broken things and puts them back together. That's what the father did with the death of his son. He took something broken and he put it back together. That's what God does in the lives of sinners. He takes broken people and he begins to put them back together. Sometimes in this life we experience that. We get a little glimpse of that. But our ultimate hope is that in the next life, God takes things that are broken and he redeems them and he restores them. He takes our sorrow and he turns it into joy. Verse 22 says, no one will take this joy from you. The sorrow, it comes and then it goes for the Christian. The joy, no one's going to take it away. What does Jesus' death on the cross change? Here's a second truth. The cross changes the way that we pray. To write it in long form, you could say the cross changes the way that we relate to God, the way that we talk to God, the way that we experience God. That's prayer. It's our relationship with God lived out in conversation. Jesus says in verse 24 to 27, he says, you're going to approach the Father in his name. That's not Jesus saying there is only one way to end your prayer, and that is to say in Jesus' name, and then everyone breathes a sigh of relief. That is Jesus saying, it's not a simple passcode, it's not a simple code word. It's Jesus saying that when you approach the Father, you don't approach him on your own merits, you approach the Father on the merits of His Son. We sang about merit just a moment ago. We sang about Jesus' all-sufficient merit. That means we believe that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. That means we believe Jesus died as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins on the cross. When we approach the Father through the merits of the Son, we come with boldness and confidence, not because we're great, but because Jesus is great. In the 21st century, we don't really think about this too much. But for a group of Jewish men in the first century who heard Jesus say, just ask the Father in my name, in my merits. When they heard Jesus say that, their thoughts were, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's only one person in the nation who gets to approach God, and that's the high priest. And he only gets to go once a year. And when he goes, he's got to offer sacrifices for his own sins and then for our sins. And he just gets to go once. And the whole thing's so risky, we tie a rope around his leg in case he dies when he's in there, we can pull him out. Now you're saying we just ask in your name because of who you are? And that's exactly what Jesus was telling him. He was the great high priest. He's the one who came to die for his people, his life of obedience, his sacrificial death gave them the right 
to come into God's presence. How do we know that? When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, opening access to the Father in a very vivid and a very dramatic way. It changes the way that you relate to God, the way you talk to God, the way you pray to God. Verse 24, till now you've asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive. We've talked about that throughout this farewell discourse. That's not Jesus giving you a blank check. That's not Jesus saying, put it all in your Amazon cart and I'll use my credit card. That's Jesus saying, I am changing the way that you relate to the Father. You are coming to him in my name, based on my merit. He loves you because you've loved me. It changes the way that we relate to God. It changes the way that we pray to God. Thirdly, Jesus' death on the cross, it changes the way that we think. Changes the way that we think. The disciples are clearly confused. They admit it at the first part of our passage. Look what they say in verse 29. They say, ah, you're speaking plainly. You're not using figurative speech. In other words, ah, the light bulb just went off. And to some degree it's gone off. Look at verse 30. It says, we know that you know all things. Does Jesus know all things? Yeah, they're right about that. Verse 30, you don't need anyone to question you. Does Jesus need anyone to interrogate him or correct him or straighten him out? No, he doesn't need that. They're right about that. Verse 30, we know and we believe you came from God. They're also right about that. Jesus follows verse 30, reminding them, the light bulb really hasn't gone off yet. You're still in the dark here, fellas. In fact, very soon you're going to be scattered each to your own home. You're going to leave me. You're going to be terrified. You're going to be confused. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be heartbroken. Why is all of that stuff going to happen? It's because they don't get the cross yet. They don't get it yet. They will. We've talked in some of our Sunday school classes this morning about the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came and Peter stood up and he started talking about the cross. Jesus died. He was crucified. He was raised for the dead. They're going to get it, but they don't get it yet. In my house, the way that we talk about this sort of situation is from time to time we tell our kids, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, it's one thing not to know something. It's another thing entirely not even to know what it is that you don't know. That's kind of the boat the disciples are in right here. They just don't even know what they don't know yet. I agree with the commentator that said, look, the disciples seem to have underestimated their depravity and underestimated Jesus' mission. You want to think rightly about your depravity and your sin, you look to the cross and you say, that's what it took to deal with my sin. It couldn't just be swept under the rug of heaven. It had to be dealt with in the most horrific way. You want to understand Jesus' mission? You look to the cross. He's not just another rabbi come to teach us. He's not just another revolutionary come to lead a political movement. He's the son of God who came to die for our salvation. When we think about the cross, we think rightly about ourselves and we think rightly about who Jesus is. The cross changes the way that we think. Lastly, fourthly, the cross changes tribulation to peace. Tribulation to peace. Look at the end of the passage. 
John 16, 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You'll leave me alone, yet I'm not alone, for the Father's with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I have overcome the world. These men were about to face pretty serious tribulation. It was hours away. It wasn't just hours away. For all of them, it was also years away. Church tradition tells us that all of these men sitting in this room listening to Jesus eventually gave their life because they refused to back down off the truth that Jesus died and rose from the dead. They experienced tribulation. They experienced the hatred of the world that we saw just a few weeks ago in this very discourse. They also had peace. It wasn't the kind of peace that removes all tribulation. That's not the kind of peace that Jesus is offering. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. At the same time, you will have peace. Not the kind of peace that just makes everything okay and easy, but the kind of peace that comes when your relationship with God has been changed. When the way that you think about sin and salvation has been changed. When the way that you think about sorrow and joy has been changed. When you understand that you, a sinful person, can have a relationship with the holy God. And that relationship won't be marked only by God's wrath and his anger towards your sin, but it can be marked by the love and the grace that you can have in Jesus. That's when you know peace. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. The sin, the darkness, the blackness, the ugliness, the hatred, the rebellion, the depravity of the world, I've overcome it. We understand when we read that verse that he hasn't overcome it yet. He's about to, but he hasn't. And in Jesus' mind, it's so certain that that was his mission, and it's so certain that he was going to see his mission through. He says, I've overcome the world. He's talking about the cross And what he's saying to the disciples and he's saying to me and he's saying to you is the cross changes everything. 